This episode is sponsored by me, Andy Hill, the host of this show. If you're looking for someone to support you on your family, wealth, and happiness journey, I'm taking on a select number of coaching clients this year. To work with me one-on-one for your family finances, go to marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching to learn more. Be open to the potential discomfort and awkwardness that comes with doing something different. Because anytime you're changing something in your relationship, it can feel like a slight disruption and it can feel a little bit awkward. But really, it's, it's moving through that discomfort that's the path to positive change. dedicated to helping you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Welcome to the Marriage, Kids, and Money podcast, everybody. This is Andy Hill, and today we're talking about creating a happier marriage. Nicole and I have seen some tough days in our relationship. We've had the yelling, the name-calling, even the marriage counseling. We've also had some excellent days where we felt appreciated, we felt loved, and we felt thrilled that we've chosen each other as our partners. So the big question is, how do we get more of those excellent days in our marriages? Well, our guests today have a concept that's going to make that a possibility for a lot of us. Kaylee and Nate Klemp are the writers behind the newly released The 8080 Marriage, a new model for a happier, stronger relationship. The book and its radically generous concepts have received praise from best-selling authors like John Gray of Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus, as well as major media outlets like The New York Times. When they aren't helping others improve their marriages, they love hiking, meditation, and yoga in their beautiful state of Colorado. Welcome to the show, Kelly and Nate. Thanks so much for having us, Andy. So good to be here. Thank you both for being here, and I appreciate you making time for this great conversation. So talk to me about what an 80-80 marriage is. What does that mean to have an 80-80 marriage? Yeah, so 80-80 is really about partly what you were describing, having more of those excellent days where it's a mindset of radical generosity and a structure of shared success, which I imagine we're going to talk a lot more about. But really, the whole project of having an 80-80 relationship is about having a guide for creating that sentiment of contribution, having a way to do roles that actually make sense understanding how do we balance power and also having some tools around how do we create more time for each other. You see the numbers in there in the 80-80 marriage. One has to assume, okay, well, what does that mean? I think it has some genesis from previous marriages. So the 80-20 is a marriage that you guys talk about in the book. Yeah, exactly. So we really go through three stages of marriage in the book. And the first stage, as you mentioned, is the 80-20 stage. And here you can think 1950s, Pleasantville, roles are pretty even, you know, not evenly divided, but clearly divided. And generally one partner, the woman, does about 80% when it comes to the spirit of contribution in the relationship, keeping the relationship together. And the other partner, generally the man, does about 20%. So this is kind of like the starting point for many of us. I know for us growing up, this was our grandparents vestiges of this were certainly alive and well in our parents' relationship. And then when we got married, this 80-20 concept sort of snuck in the back door. We like to say that there's a shadow of 80-20 cast across most relationships, even the most progressive, you know, we're going to be equals type relationships. They still struggle with the, the shadow of this concept. 
Yeah, it makes sense. And as you're describing it, going from our grandparents' generation to our parents and then even seeping into ours, it definitely makes a lot of sense. And then now the 50-50 model. Talk about what that means. Yeah. So we think that this is the model of today. So our generation, most of us, when we get married, the fundamental question that we're asking is how can we be equals and in love? And for most of us, the answer is, well, let's just try to make everything perfectly fair. And not only that, let's keep score to make sure that we're doing a good job, you know, keeping our partner accountable and achieving perfect fairness. And there are all sorts of problems with this model. We tried this for many years. It was a disaster. But when we were writing the book, we also uncovered some really interesting research out of psychology that says when it comes to assessing fairness, we're actually really bad. We're basically deluded that, you know, there's this phenomenon psychologists call availability bias, where all of my wonderful contributions, they're all available to me. And when it comes to what Kaylee does, I, I don't really see a lot of that. So, so that distorts my perception of fairness. But then not only that, there's this tendency to overestimate the amount of time you spend on domestic work and childcare. So, you know, I, I say it took me an hour to go to the grocery store. It was more like 20 minutes. So if you take these two cognitive biases together, the result is that we're having all these arguments about fairness based on really bad data and pure delusion. I love that. I'm, I'm laughing to myself because I I will be furiously washing the dishes, this whole sink of dishes. And I'm like, of course, I'm thinking to myself in this egotistical way. You're thinking I'm always doing the dishes or I, I feel like I do the dishes more than she does while I'm while I'm in the act. But then, of course, later that day, she's doing them or the next day she's doing. It is, as you're describing, our own delusion in our own head that we contribute more than our other partner. So you guys hinted at it a little bit this was not working for you and now 8080 is your model. So how did this evolve for you in your relationship? Yeah, it's funny. And we actually did kind of all three stages that when we first got married at 26, we did have sort of this shadow. And while if you had asked us outright, Kaylee and Nate, what do you think about marriage? You'd be like, well, of course we're equals. You know, we both you know, graduated from the same schools, we're educated, whatever. We should, make, we should make this fair. And yet there were ways that I was imitating my parents and he was imitating his parents. And it really took us getting more aware to sort of pause and be like, wait a second, this isn't working. And so we tried, let's make it fair. And that's what Nate was saying. There's sort of a cultural center of gravity and we get it because it seemed so much better, right? Rather than just doing these legacy things that we had seen modeled, we were like, oh no, no, we're going to make a spreadsheet. <laughs> we're going to divide these. We're going to make it totally even. And it was better, sort of, except that it kept leading us back to this idea of scorekeeping. And to your point, there was a sense of like, wait a minute, I'm going to the grocery store again. I've definitely been shopping more than you have, right? Or, hey, wait a second. We're at your parents for a holiday again? That's totally unfair. So we started keeping track of all these fairness things. And really, it sounds kind of silly, but it really broke once our daughter was born that we could kind of do fairness until she entered the picture. And then there was just no chance, right? Does it count double if the time that you're spending with your kid is between two and four in the morning? Like, how do you actually calibrate for that? And then it was little things like, who's going to greet the bus when she gets off at it in the afternoon? And trying to make it perfectly fair while balancing a travel schedule, we realized that 
we were actually undermining how much we love each other by trying to keep everything fair. And so recognizing that this aspiration that we were trying was actually undermining us, that's when we sort of said, there's got to be a better way and went out and started interviewing people to find out what was working in this modern context. Cause if we looked just at ourselves, we were like, we don't have any answers. So they've got to be somewhere. And that really led us kind of on an anthropological journey, as Nate will say, interviewing couples of all walks of life to find out what worked and what didn't. And that's what led us to this mindset of radical generosity and a structure of shared success seemed to be kind of the key to having the best relationship and more and more of those excellent days. That's incredible. So in those hundred plus conversations you guys had, obviously there were certain ones that piqued your interest that seemed very great for your relationship that might be great for others. How did you define radical generosity? Yeah, well, as Kaylee mentioned, radical generosity was really the key mindset that we kept observing when it came to thriving couples. And when we talked to couples who were really struggling, what we noticed is that radical generosity was non-existent. Not only was it non-existent, but the very idea was just like, that's crazy. Why would, Why would I, I do be that? generous? Because <laughs> generosity is by definition unfair, right? So, so there's this sense of like the irrationality of the concept. So, so that really you know, led us to think carefully about, okay, so there's this spirit, this mindset of radically generous contribution in marriage. What does that actually mean? And we broke it down into three primary elements, which can get really practical and tactical. So the first is really about what you do in marriage. We think of this as contribution. So these are those really simple micro actions of contribution that are totally unnecessary, but can totally change your spouse's day. So like if I leave a post-it note on Kaylee's computer monitor that says, I love you, or I turn on the coffee maker for her first thing in the morning, cause she drinks coffee and I don't, right? That, that's totally unnecessary. And yet it just completely changes the culture of, of interaction. So, so that's thing one. The second is appreciation, which is what you see in marriage. And many of us, we have this tendency to fixate on all the things that our partner is doing wrong, right? So, you know, we, we see all the, the ways in which they, they didn't quite measure up or they said something that was a little too harsh or they dropped the ball. And what we don't see often are all the things they're doing well. Mm -hmm. So appreciation is really about shifting the glasses you wear in marriage. So you start to see the things that your spouse actually is doing, even ordinary things and then appreciating them with a thank you. And it's interesting because I think stories are sometimes helpful. So I have traveled extensively during our relationship for work and pre 8080, I would come home and reliably what I would see is the like, seriously, you left me four loads of laundry to do. Or I'd walk in and I'd be like, seriously, no one thought that it was necessary to sweep up four nights of dinner off the floor. And what I wouldn't say is, oh my gosh, you're an amazing dad. Thank you for how you showed up and parented while I was gone. Thank you for the freedom to do this work for these clients. And just by looking for what I could appreciate, 
it, it changed because exactly as Nate's saying, I think it's kind of like a scavenger hunt. You find what you're looking for. If you're looking for what's wrong, you find it. But if you look for things that your partner's doing great, you'll find that too. And that becomes a bit contagious, which I think is really cool. I left a sticky note on Nate's nightstand, just sort of wishing him good luck on an interview that we were doing. And he then wrote me a card which was so thoughtful and so kind. Well, our daughter got on board. She was like, oh, I can do sticky notes. So like, I love you sticky notes started showing up in random places. So there's also this benefit that shows up in your family when you make this mindset shift with contribution and appreciation. I think that's such a good point of seeking out the good because there is so much opportunity to seek out the bad. I think maybe our lizard brain is hardwired for that as well as just maybe the news, anything. It's easy to find the bad. So if we switch that mindset and focus on what is the good, what is the positive, I think that's that's a good mindset for life. It's a good mindset up for your marriage. So you guys talk about a couple of things that you felt loved by doing. And I, I heard a lot of words there. I heard some notes. I heard some appreciation. I bring this up because I love words. <laughs> My wife knows that or she's been trained to know that now. Um, <laughs> but Nicole could take them or leave them, honestly. So does radical generosity need to keep in mind how the partner likes to be loved? Yes. So part of what I think you're referencing is Gary Chapman's work around the five love languages. And we've sort of adopted that a bit to think about love maps. And Andy, you you nailed it. Yes. Radical contribution, radical generosity. Like you kind of can't go wrong, but if you know what matters to your partner, you get a lot more kind of energy and good feelings and love for the act of contribution. And sometimes we're sort of silly about it where you know you could do cartwheels down your hallway and that might live in the spirit, but your partner probably doesn't care. So much better to know. Hey, quality time or having your full attention. I actually think that especially for people for whom quality time is really meaningful, the idea of, I actually gave you my full presence for the five or 10 minutes where you are sharing something significant or telling me about your day, that can be so radically generous and land as profoundly connecting and significant. It makes a lot of sense because I've gone down that path and I would feel frustrated if I went back to myself five years ago and be like, I am writing her all these notes. I am telling her I love her and I'm thanking her all the time and I just don't see that she cares. And it's like, okay, well, yeah, if you go down the right path really hard, if you radically are generous in an area that they don't really care about, then you got to be careful, right? Totally. And I think there's another piece here, which, so in the three-legged stool of radical generosity, we talk about contribution and appreciation, which we've covered, and also revealing. And revealing is both about being willing to say when there's an upset or when something goes wrong and to clean it up right away. But it's also about letting your partner know you, know your inner world, know what's going on inside. And I think there's actually a really interesting revealing appreciation connection that if I don't feel appreciated, maybe because my partner is writing me amazing notes that don't mean anything to me, it's important for me to reveal, hey, what actually lands in my world are acts of service. Hey, me arriving home to a clean swept floor and a full tank of gas is way better than flowers and jewelry. Like (laughs) other people will flip that on its head and be like, I don't care if there's ever gas in the car, jewelry, please. But it's really about 
sharing with your partner what matters to you and listening as that partner so that you can show up. Communication first. I mean, it's all about making space and time for that communication and being open and honest. That can be the first step for a lot of people. We'll be back to the show after a quick word from our sponsors. Are you looking for someone to walk alongside you on your journey to family financial independence? Well, I would love to help you achieve your goals and help your family thrive. I work with couples, individuals, and families all around the U.S. via video chat and can assist in the following areas. Becoming debt-free, growing your net worth, crafting and sticking to your budget, reviewing Coast Fire plans, developing strategies to build generational wealth for your kids, and designing your future work-optional lifestyle. Doesn't that sound nice? (laughs) If you're interested in working with me one-on-one, you can book a time with me by visiting marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching. I would love to help you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Visit marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching to learn more, or you can click the link in our show description. If you're looking to improve your financial situation, it helps when you're able to cut out unnecessary costs. Cell phone services are a necessity for sure, but we don't need to be overpaying for them, right? That's why I like Tello Mobile, a phone service worth talking about. We've been fully on board as a family with Tello for over two years now, and we are so happy that we made the switch. For us, the reception and data service is better than Verizon, and our costs were nearly cut in half. Tello runs on the T-Mobile network and it's wowing new customers like us with their rock bottom prices and stellar service. With over 10,000 reviews, Tello is rated as excellent on Trustpilot, and this is quite rare in the wireless world. Nicole and I went for the unlimited data, minutes, and texting plan for only 25 bucks per month each. Isn't that crazy? You heard that right. $25 is their most expensive plan, actually. And Tello is running a special offer for MKM listeners right now. Check out Tello today at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. That's marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello and use the code MKM20 to get 20% off on your first month of service for any Tello plan above that $10 per month mark. Again, use MKM20 to get 20% off at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello, and you'll be supporting this show. Hurry up. The code is valid until April 19th, 2024. Marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. Thanks for taking time to consider our sponsors, everyone. Let's jump back into the show. We talked about feeling loved in the right ways. How about utilizing our talents in the right ways? Because I think there's been times in our relationship where I'll use the example of home repairs. You know, maybe classically the man is supposed to like, you know, whatever, fix the stuff around the house. I am useless when it comes to that. But my wife has a major, major, there you go, buddy. (laughs) My wife and I has a major just sort of engineering talent. And on the opposite side, let's say finances. Obviously, this show talk a lot about finances. I dive into that stuff. I love it. She could care less. Is a big part of being radically generous also focusing on your talents and dedications? Well, first of all, I'm totally right there with you. Early on, I think Kaylee thought she was marrying a handyman who was going to be out in the yard fixing sprinklers. His and dad like is that. so brilliant. My dad kind of is stuff. that. Oh my gosh. I am not. Misleading. The <laughs> apple fell really far from the tree there. So I'm with you on that one. 
Uh, but the deeper question, I think, is great. And what you're pointing to is really this second piece of the framework that we talk about in the book, which is, okay, you have this mindset of radical generosity, but how does that show up in the actual structure of your life? And one of the key pieces of structure is roles. Who's doing what? And this was really fascinating. You know, when we did these hundred interviews with couples, we would ask most couples, so how did you come up with your roles? You know, how did you decide who does what around the house? And most of them would sit there awkwardly and kind of look at us with a strange look and then finally say, well, you know, we just kind of winged it. And so we actually turned that into a technical term. We think that's the way most couples do this. It's the wing it approach. That's certainly what we did, where it's like, I don't know, we're going to let historical accident and gender norms from the 1950s decide who does what. And as a result, it may lead to me, the guy who sucks at all handyman things, trying to fix our sprinklers and, and probably wrecking them, you know, and a lot of frustration and a lot of conflict. So one of the things we realized in the book is that, you know, there's a much better way to do this. And we actually have this great exercise on roles that, that couples can go through. But the essence of that is really that it can be transformative to just sit down with each other for 20 minutes and really think about how would we set up these roles in a more intentional way? And how would we design them around what we're actually good at, mm -hmm. what we're interested in? Maybe there are certain things that we can outsource. You know, these, these are questions that most couples almost never ask. We certainly didn't. And then the day that we did and we got clarity around it, it just brought so much more connection and love into our life because we weren't fighting about this stupid yeah. stuff anymore. And it's so interesting as we talk with couples sort of post book, one of my favorite examples shows up in the kitchen around cooking that there it's a, a spot where it's sort of like, all right, who's going to make the meal? And the people will do the like, I'll do Mondays and you do Tuesdays and you do Wednesdays and you know, Saturday we'll order takeout. But if they actually take a step back regularly, one person will say, I like cooking it's fun for me. It's meditative for me. It clears my head. And somebody else is like, Oh my gosh, that's torture for me. It feels like a to do. And just even recognizing that what you enjoy, not just what you're good at, but also what's fun. Where do you want to spend your time? Can have it be where it's not fair in quotes, but it's so much more balanced and enjoyable and it works. And you break down those gender norms where it's like, well, I'm the female, so I've been cooking for a while, but man, do I hate some cooking, you know? But yes. <laughs> honestly, I love getting up early and making breakfast for my kids and packing their lunches. And it just feels like not a chore for me. So when I'm contributing selfishly, I'm leaning towards the things that I have a strength to or enjoyment. And I think that's where you're going with this. A hundred percent. I would argue that's totally 80-80 because sometimes if you structure your roles so that you're doing the things that you love, there's way less overhead of burden. And then when you're doing the things where both of you decide, you know, neither of us love the dishes, then it's the mindset shift of, can this feel like a gift to the family? Can this feel like a gift to myself, to the partnership rather than like, oh man, Next time I cook, oh, the dishes you're going to do. <laughs> I'm going to make yeah. a bomb in the kitchen. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. Okay, so I feel like, and you guys mentioned this earlier, I think Nicole and I have done 80-20 to a sort of extent. 
both of us have sort of a classically, you know, background for that in our parents, as well as then we moved to this sort of 50-50 recently over the past couple of years as she's transitioned away from her stay-at-home mom role to now working full-time and I'm running this business. And we are, we've been rocking this 50-50 thing for a while. And as we're talking now, I'm I'm like, okay, you know, I think there are some things that we're doing that's 80-80 and some that maybe is not. How can a couple like us start to make some small steps towards 80-80 if we've seen ourselves classically in these other roles? Well, yeah, we followed that same journey. And I'll tell you about a huge turning point for us, which was for the first decade or so of being married, we really thought about our lives as two separate individuals following two separate paths with two separate sets of ambitions. And it really became a kind of turf war around like, hey, if you take that business trip, I can't do as much work. Or if I take that trip, you can't work with this client. And so we were really thinking about what's best for me. That was the fundamental question. And we started, I mean, this was really at the beginning of this project, Mm -hmm. actually, you know, we started to experiment with this idea. What if we shifted the question to what's best for us? And what if instead of thinking about our life as two separate entities trying to achieve their own separate ambitions. What if we thought of our life like a a shared venture, almost like a a company together? Like we had this, this family Inc. We called it. We actually, that was the original concept. We changed it to shared success because we got some pushback on it. But I still love the idea of if we could create a shared entity where we think about this less as what's best for me, what's best for you, and more as how do we win together? What does that mean in terms of how we align our jobs? And, and, you know, we started asking, you know, for Kaylee, if she's going to take a a client, is that going to help us win together? It just completely shifted the dynamic. And the other piece of that is that just like if we were starting a venture together, that was a business venture, we started to think about, okay, well, what are the values of this family enterprise? Like if this is our family Inc, we actually named it Kajona for us. So K-A from Kaylee, N-A from me, and J-O from our daughter. If we, if we name this entity and we think about, you know, like what's best for this entity, what are the guiding principles and values that are sort of directing us? And that was a huge step for us because then we actually had some structure around our priorities and around the boundaries we wanted to set and around the decisions we wanted to make in terms of our careers. So, so I know that's a long-winded answer, but that was like a really huge turning point for us. I love that. Yeah, it's thinking about the relationship in terms of us and not myself or herself. And that makes a lot of sense. It's got me thinking about... And we talk about money a lot on the show. It's got me thinking about money too. So I've spoken to a lot of women that either have classically felt maybe trapped in a marriage because they don't have that control. Maybe it was an 80-20 kind of lifestyle. How does the 80-80 model see finances? How do you see, I guess, your personal finances and your family wealth building? How do you see 80-80 in that regard? That's a great question. Money for us is one of the three key domains where we see power and 
power for us is about how do you create balance in the relationship? And that can show up domestically. That often will show up also in sex, but it, it really shows up with money. And so in 8080, what we want to create is balanced power. And if there's a person in a relationship with really asymmetrical power, in 8080, we think a lot about structure and how can structure help create that experience of balance. So we've seen this where there are two people who are contributing relatively equally financially, and even still, somehow the money power dynamics get really imbalanced. We've also seen it where there's one person who's contributing a lot financially and one person who perhaps is a stay-at-home parent whose huge contribution to the relationship is in staying at home is not financial, where they've still been able to create balance in money. And the way that we've seen that work is is there some shared pot? So it feels like you win together and it can be the whole thing, right? In some ways, that's the, the easiest. If there's one shared pot, it's easiest to see how, you know, a win for one is a win for all, but it can also be where you have side sashes. It can also be where you can, you know, both contribute to the center and keep other things separate. But this idea of creating something that feels joint and then also using budgets to help just connect more, I get not even connect more, but align more around what do we agree for spending and what do we agree for saving? And can we both live within the parameters that we set as a team rather than, again, these sort of underhanded power plays? Yeah. And a lot of that comes from conversation as we keep coming back to. So taking that time, setting aside that time, you mentioned sex as well. Obviously we all want to be radically generous with sex. How can we do that? Yeah. Yes. Well, when we were writing this book, we knew we had to have a chapter on sex and it was really the most interesting and in some ways the most challenging chapter. The big breakthrough for us though, is we were interviewing a number of couples. We also interviewed a lot of sex therapists and marriage therapists about the topic. And there were two things that were really interesting that we discovered. One was when it comes to sex problems or disagreements about sex or disappointment around sex, it's rarely a sex problem. You know, you read Cosmo magazine and they would have you believe that like, oh, if you just use the right orgasm balm or, you know, <laughs> if you use this sex toy or this role play, then you'll just magically ascend to this realm of like amazing sex every night all the time. Right. That that turns out not to be true, that really sex is just this kind of mirror of the rest of your life. So we like to say that what goes down in the line at Costco is often what goes down in the bedroom, that if there's resentment and tension at Costco, it's probably going to show up when you're in the bedroom as well. So that's thing one. But then the second thing is there's this phenomenon that happens to many couples. There's actually a technical term for this sexual desire discrepancy, where there's often a higher drive and a lower drive partner. And sometimes those roles can switch over time. But basically, there's one partner who wants it more. There's one partner who wants it less. And a lot of couples experience significant conflict and significant issues around power just in that dynamic where you know one person wants to have sex more, the other doesn't, or they want it a different way. And so we came up with this idea, we call it orgasmic altruism, and it's kind of like radical generosity applied to sex. The basic idea being, if you have a discrepancy like that, and you're the high drive partner, 
can you move toward your partner just knowing that, hey, they're not into it as much. Can I sort of like support them by by not being as aggressive in my ass or maybe being okay with, you know, a slightly lesser frequency than I would prefer. And then for the lower drive partner, there's also a kind of moving toward the middle of like, hey, if I'm not turned on, am I open to getting turned on? Or if I'm gonna say no, instead of just saying no, not tonight, can I make a plan like, hey, not tonight, but let's, you know, tomorrow afternoon or tonight or the next night. So anyway, those are the two ideas around sex that for us were just really fascinating that we learned from all these interviews. I love the concept of going above and beyond. It's a beautiful thing. I feel like it makes the world go around. I do have a a thought in my brain. You know, we do so much right now as parents, as couples, as busy entrepreneurs or, you know, employees. Is there a point maybe with an 80-80 marriage that, as you guys point out in the book, equals 160 of burning ourselves out? Could we burn ourselves out by giving too much? I love this question. I think one of my favorite chapters in the book, we write about priorities, right? And have a whole exercise to help you discern your priorities. But my favorite is really boundaries. And we have this fun exercise where you imagine your life like a boat and you put all the things that you are doing in your life on the boat. And pretty regularly when individuals look at their boat, they're like, oh my gosh, no wonder it feels like I'm drowning. I'm literally sinking my boat. And so to your point, if radical generosity starts to move out and become, I don't actually say no to anything. That's not radical generosity. That's not holding any boundaries and therefore not living in alignment with the values that the couple decides are most significant. And so I think to your point, Andy, if you say, hey, what's most important to me is I'm going to go serve on the school board and I'm going to be, you know, a community member. Amazing. Do that. And it might mean that you're going to say no to perhaps a professional opportunity or extra time with, you know, one of your kiddos. Whereas if you're saying, gosh, what feels really significant to me is bolstering our marriage and giving more attention to these young beings that we're sort of parenting into the world, then I might say no to some opportunities that are awesome, but that actually would sink the boat. So I think the way around burnout is really getting clear on those priorities and being willing to set boundaries and say no to things, even if they're awesome. Yeah. That reminds me of the one thing, you know, if you guys have heard that book, I mean, focusing on what I took away from reading it and having a conversation with the podcast hosts is that if you can focus on one area, they'll have this sort of cascading effect on other important areas of your life. So to your point, if maybe you're joining the school board or taking this extra job or going over there is because maybe your, your marriage isn't going well and you, you want, you want an outlet, maybe you focus on the marriage and then you don't need the outlets for the other things. That's at least my takeaway, you know, from some of that. So there's somebody else listening. I like to ask these questions. There's somebody else listening and they're thinking, you know what? I'm barely getting 20% out of my partner. How could I expect 80? What would you say to them? Yeah. So Such an important question. We actually devoted an entire chapter to what we call the reluctant partner. And the big idea here is it's easy to sit in, in some ways, kind of righteousness and go, hey, it's your fault. You're not giving enough. I'm clearly over-contributing. And it's worth just getting curious on the one hand, how am I setting my partner up? 
so that even if they try, they can't. Right. And so getting really curious, I, I did this to, to Nate early in our relationship where I wouldn't cede control of things. And so by holding on really tightly, I would then complain about it. I actually was like you, Andy, I'm, I was managing our finances and I held them really tight and then Nate would spend and I'd be super pissed that, you know, he wasn't doing something that I thought was right. Or he didn't understand that, you know, that spend in the context of the whole, well, I wasn't actually willing to let go. And so I was creating that 80-20 experience for myself. Now, if I get curious and I go, how have I been creating this? Am I willing to allow for some mistakes? Am I willing to cede control? Am I willing to invite them in? Am I willing to teach them how to do some things? Are we willing to look at our roles and rebalance? And even still, I'm like, huh, I really think I've done a pretty a fearless moral inventory, if you will. And I'm kind of still landing on, I feel like I'm over contributing. In some ways, I think we go back to mindset that if I'm doing the things anyway, the question is, am I going to keep doing the same things from an attitude of resentment from an attitude of this is unfair from scorekeeping, or if I'm going to do them anyway, can I just shift my mindset? This is a gift to the family. This is a gift to our relationship because what I change, even if it's not necessarily the external relationship, I change my internal experience of the circumstance. Instead of bathing myself in cortisol and resentment, I get a space to breathe. I get a chance to give. I get a chance to open my heart a little. Starting with generosity. I love it. That makes sense. It's a good place to start. All right. So somebody's listening and they are digging this. They really like the idea of the 80-80 marriage. If they could take away one step after this interview, what could they do today to improve their marriage? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I was talking to a marriage therapist who is using this book with some of his clients and he had this great line, which is, Everybody loves to go second. Everybody's happy to go second when it comes to marriage. And I thought that was really interesting. And I think it applies here because if you think this idea is interesting and you like the idea of radical generosity, it's just worth knowing that there is that trap that when you're caught in this mindset of fairness, you think to yourself, well, I love this idea. And if my partner starts to do it, then I'm totally on board. But if that doesn't happen, then, you know, this isn't going to work for us. And so I think like thing one would be, be open to the potential discomfort and awkwardness that comes with doing something different. Because anytime you're changing something in your relationship, it can feel like a slight disruption and it can feel a little bit awkward, but really it's, it's moving through that discomfort. That's the path to positive change. So, so that'd be the first thing. But then the second thing I would encourage them to do is, you know, potentially share this with their partner. So maybe you listen to this podcast together with your partner. Maybe you talk about the book together with your partner. Maybe you do one of these exercises we've talked about. Just some way to bring them into the idea because it can work if only one person's on board because mindset is contagious. So your generosity is likely to be contagious, even if your partner has no idea what's going on. But it definitely works better if your partner is like, oh, yeah, let's try this out. If you're both on board, then you're kind of dancing together and it, it gets off the ground more quickly. Lead it with something you could do together or, as you said at the beginning, be the change you want to see in your marriage, right? Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. I love that book. <laughs> Excellent. Well, let's tell people where to find this book. Where can they find it? And if they want to connect with you guys afterward, where's the best place to go? 
So you can find the book anywhere that you like to buy books. So if that's your local independent bookstore, great. It's certainly on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. If you want to connect with us, our website is 8080marriage.com. So 8080marriage.com. And also on Instagram at 8080marriage. Great place to find us if you have a question or a thought love to connect with people who are reading the book, have questions about the book around these ideas of marriage and how to have, to your point, Andy, more excellent days. Well, we also do a newsletter every week where we try to take one of these ideas and just sort of, you know, apply it to the craziness of everyday life. So that information about that is on our website and that's free. Excellent. Yeah, these are great ways for people to consume the media. I will highly suggest the book. It is a great read. It's also something that will maybe take what you've been doing in your marriage for a little while and just give you an opportunity to kind of reevaluate where you are and give you some tools and some takeaways on how to take it to the next step. So both of you, thank you so much, very much. Kaylee and Nate Clamp, thank you very much. And I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having us. I need these types of conversations to help me reset, to help me focus and recognize that my marriage comes first. Here are my top three takeaways from my conversation with Kaylee and Nate Klemp. Number one, discover your current marriage type. We discussed three marriage types during the interview, 80-20, 50-50, and 80-80. Now, there are pros and cons to all of these, so the goal here isn't to judge you based on which type you are in and say your current state of marriage is right or wrong. The goal is to understand what you're currently doing, discuss that marriage style with your spouse, and see if either of you would like to make a change. Because no matter which marriage type you're rolling with today, change can be good for your relationship, and generosity can be even better. Number two, make time for conversation. In order to make changes or even to analyze what's going right in your relationship, we need to carve out time to talk. This can be difficult for us post-pandemic, especially as the world is opening up once again. Schedules are tight, parenting can be demanding, and your employer might be slowly moving you back towards fully working in person. But... If you're committed to this relationship, if you truly want to create a happier marriage, then make time to care for it and improve it. Nicole and I have been carving out a tea time a couple of days per week. No, this isn't golf. We sit down, we drink some tea, and we talk about what's going on in our lives. Sometimes just carving out the time with no specific schedule or agenda, it leaves space for the important things that come up in our marriage. So that might be something you want to try. Number three, try out radical generosity. Perhaps you're skeptical of the 80-80 marriage concept. And honestly, I was. My first reaction was, hey, 80 plus 80 is 160. So if 100 is my max, how can I give more than my max? Now, I don't think Kaylee and Nate are going for burnout with this. They're not They're not saying, hey, give as much until you pass out. No, I think their intention is for us to not keep score and wonder when my spouse is going to reciprocate the good deed that I did. And if they don't do it well enough or good enough, then that score is going to affect our relationship. I think they're looking for us to be the change we want to see in our marriage. If we want it to be better, then we need to lead by example. 
So give it a try today. Be radically generous in an area you know your spouse likes to be loved. Be radically generous, maybe with the chores or the housework or something you maybe wouldn't normally do that you know your spouse would love. Give it a try. It could be the start of something beautiful in your relationship. And those are my top three takeaways, everyone. I would love to hear from you on what yours were. Please hit me up on social media at Andy Hill MKM, and let's keep the conversation going. As a quick reminder, everybody, this show is for entertainment purposes only. Be sure to seek out a professional for your specific situation. A big thanks to Dan Tabbitt for editing our show today and to Dan Hines and Alec Collins for putting together our YouTube videos. We are over 3,000 subscribers there and marching towards four. That's a big goal of mine for the quarter. So if you want to support your buddy Andy, please go to marriagekidsandmoney.com slash YouTube and hit the red subscribe button. That would be awesome. Before we go for the day, I want to encourage you to join our free Thriving Families Facebook community. Join me and over 1,100 other families as we help each other thrive this year. Each week, we ask you to share some wins, some things that are going on in your life that are great. And last week, we heard this good news from our friend, Joelle. Made our first mortgage payment today with an additional $600 to principal. Hoping to say goodbye to the bank in 15 years versus our 30-year term. That is awesome. I love that. I love this excitement and I love the dedication to creating more freedom in your life sooner than later. Joelle, congratulations. This is super cool. Financial habits like this are going to set you up to have so many options later in life. So can I get a round of applause for our friend, Joelle? All right. Yes. <laughs> very cool. Very cool. If you want to join our free Facebook community and inspire others to win as well, please join us at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash community. That's marriagekidsandmoney.com slash community. We'd love to see you there. In the spirit of growth and inspiration, I'm going to end the show with a quote today from Gary Chapman. Love is a choice you make every day. Good luck with your radical generosity adventures, my friends. Carpe diem. 